There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. This is Drive Live with Natalie Lindo Taylor and Tim Elliott. 422. That text, actually, you, you are perfectly at liberty to use that word. It is, there is an official definition in that word, and it is not a swear word, NLT. No, it's not. I didn't know, but it does say a moron is a moron. Those at Leave Litter cost society in so many ways. This is only one example. I wasn't sure if moron was too offensive, but I've said it three times now, so hopefully it's not. Well, that's cleared that up, hasn't it? So I'm <laughs> glad that we've got past that issue. Drive Live Talks Legal. Right. Our guest today is Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Petka. Welcome, Ludmilla. How are you? Good to be here and happy pre-Halloween. <laughs> is this that a thing pre-Halloween? So today I'm is not what? sure actually I think when the thick of Halloween at least where I live mm. it's been celebrated for the last six days I love Halloween I think it's great the Evil Hallows is just a sweetie fest it's brilliant Well I feel quite upset actually because where I live the, the, the trick-or-treaters came round and I, it, I wasn't in and I bought the sweets You weren't in? Were you really not in? No how did, you, really how did you know they came around if you weren't in? Have you got voice-activated cameras no, or No, because it said this is the night they were going to come around. So, it was so like, you were out the night they were going to come around, so yeah. it's even worse, isn't I it? So really you went bad. out rather than give children sweets. I know. Tim, you would make a good lawyer. That was very good. Uh, thanks good very detective. much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that. I'll take it. It's a compliment. <laughs> it's a compliment for sure. I'm joking. Anyway, we all, I do always say we get lots of questions for Lude Miller, and if you can text them in early so she can get to as many as possible. Mm. Someone has already texted in, and uh, they ask Lude Miller, the RDC has ruled in my favour, but how can I ensure the landlord pays the compensation that's awarded? Well, if the landlord does not pay the compensation voluntarily, the only way to ensure this is to file what's called an enforcement proceeding, and that's filed uh, through the courts. And as part of the enforcement, you would ask the court to issue various letters to various authorities, such as, for example, land department, RTA, uh, banks, and so on and so forth, trying to find where the landlord might have assets. And then as part of that search, then the court would issue to have the uh, pr- proportionate amount of, let's say, uh, money that uh, if you've located a bank account, transferred to the court in order to satisfy the judgment. Uh, often there are no bank accounts, so if there are any assets such as property, um, then usually then the court would issue an order to freeze the assets and then uh, and then auction them off in order to, to again satisfy the uh, the judgment. But so that's really the only way of doing it. It's um, it, it's 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 another legal process. It's not uh, very complicated, uh, but it certainly is in addition to. Uh, the rental dispute so therefore if you can negotiate uh, a voluntary payment that's your better option but it can take uh, that sounds to me like it could be a really lengthy process in fact it isn't it sounds uh, quite lengthy but ultimately now you have a final judgment so the the liability has already been established so the rest of it is more administrative and the enforcement courts are more administrative so it's more about um, and the, the more detail you have as a claimant to give to the court um, the sooner you'll be able to locate um, those assets so for example if you have a bank account of the landlord if you used to pay the landlord directly through a bank uh, transfer then you might have the bank account so that would be the, the court will be able to locate the assets faster but in fact it's not very complicated and it's not uh, it's not very lengthy it's just more procedural uh, but uh, it actually is very effective. 
Okay, Ludmilla, if we can talk about one of the topics you wanted to bring up today, and this is the recent changes to the Dubai investment visa. What are those? Well, let me actually preface because it surprises me still today how few people know about the Dubai investor visa, and that is visa, residence visa that is issued on the basis of property ownership. So that particular regulation that allows for such visa to be issued has been in existence for the last at least three to four years, and yet uh, very few people seem to still be aware of it. So it is possible in Dubai. Now, the uh, the change that has happened, it's um, it's it's really one element of um, the process, but it is important because um, we have actually dealt with it ourselves for a client. And that is, if the property was transferred normally the, to qualify to get an investor visa, the property has to be worth at least a million dirhams. Right. That's in just relevant terms. Now, the change is that if the property was inherited or if the property was gifted, then that disqualifies it from uh, from investor visa. In other words, let's say if Tim had um, a father to whom he wanted to transfer his property and then your, your father wanted to, on the back of that property, um, apply for residence visa, he he would not now qualify because the property was transferred to him as a gift. Uh, so to qualify for this, the property needs to have been actually purchased. So that's that's one change that is very new, only about two or so weeks ago it was issued. And um, it's, it's important because there are a lot of uh, people that are applying for property visas, especially um, where properties are being inherited. And for now, that's not... So, it's, not I mean, effectively, it's a loophole that's closed, isn't it? I mean, I guess that that's probably that's happened in the past, and... You know, families have come over and tried to take advantage of that. Um, I mean, that would be that would be sort of the speculation, but right. uh, it was not announced, and so those who are thinking about it, just be aware of it right now because it is it is new. Okay, so but it is still uh, a million dirhams. The the financial investment hasn't changed. No, it hasn't, right. and uh, it's uh, there is still a little bit of a debate whether this is based on. The the original value of um, the property when it was purchased as per contract, or it's a market value today, and it, uh, usually the, the the simple rule is if if it's in the contract, if the property is at least uh, as per the sales and purchase agreement, if it's at least valued at a million dirhams, it would qualify. But uh, in the event there the property was bought years ago, there's a possibility that the land department will appoint an expert to evaluate the property as of its market its current market condition. So assuming you fulfill the criteria, you've spent a million dirhams, you own the property and you then qualify for a visa, you receive your visa. How long does that uh, residence visa last? You, clearly you can't work on that unless you obtain permission, uh, I guess. And would that visa just naturally roll while you own the property? Uh, great question. So it, for all intents and purposes, it's a, it's a full-on, a full-fledged residence visa and that right. allows you to have all the benefits that otherwise a UAE resident would have, uh, except uh, one, and that is being able to work. And even with permission to work, you, you cannot work under that visa. Okay. And uh, But otherwise, it's for two years, and uh, obviously those who work for f- in free zones, actually um, the residence visa is in free zone, for free zone employees is three years, but otherwise for most um, outside of free zone employees, it's two years. So it's very, so this particular residence visa is closer to, it's two years, so it's closer to the non-free zone visa in terms of its duration, but otherwise it works the very same way. You can sponsor staff. You can sponsor domestics. You can um, you can qualify uh, for loans and everything else that otherwise would be uh, would uh, would come with being a resident here. Last time we talked about this or touched on this, we had so many questions mm-hmm. in because I think so many people aren't aware of these changes. A- and if they are worried, if you have bought a property, the values changed. Is there anything you can do legally? 
Well, if you already bought a property and you uh, and you've already qualified for the visa, then then there isn't really much you, um, that you need to worry about. As long as you own that property, the visa will continue to run. Uh, there is actually one other twist to this. And that is if the property is owned by a female versus a male, there is a small difference. If a property is, is owned by a, uh, a female, she can sponsor her husband only for one year. Whereas if the property is owned by a male, he would sponsor his wife and all the dependents for the same duration that his visa is, which would be two years. So that's really the only other difference. Okay, look, Millie Yamalava is here from Yamalava and Plethka. Drive live, talks legal. Here's what we're doing, 4.41. It's back to uh, investor visas because there have been some changes if you uh, inherit a property, for example. We'll just outline those again because during uh, the last few minutes, Vincent called Ludmilla and said, I have a property here, I have a visa. Because I have a property, I fulfill the criteria. It's worth more than a million dirhams. He's asking, can I pass it on to my son? Would he then automatically qualify for the visa? His son, I think, is 16, Vincent said. And the answer, of course, is he doesn't qualify. Indeed. As as things currently stand, that would disqualify because the property is inherited versus purchased. All right, then. A couple of questions in uh, from that. Let's just run through these very briefly. Does an investor visa apply if property is mortgaged? Stephanie's asking. Um, Yes, it does, as long as at least 50% of the value of the property has been paid off. Okay. And Pfizer asks, does the visa law apply to properties in Ajman? No, it doesn't. The visa law only applies for properties in Dubai, and there is even then there's an exception that excludes for now the DIC properties. And this is because the current visa, uh, property visa, is issued uh, vis-a-vis the land department and uh, DED, or the Department of Economic Development, uh, whereas all DFC properties are subject to the DIFC's own land registry, uh, and um, and it's the, the DIFC authority. So for now, the DIFC properties do not qualify. And Ludmilla, if I can just return to, to the question from Vincent, it just did uh, get my mind going a little bit. Imagine Vincent then decided to sell the property to his son. Would that be permissible? Yes, as long as he sells the property, then that would be permissible. Now, you know, whether there is actual consideration that happens, uh, that's something that will remain to be seen. And that is, for example, let's say uh, Vincent sells the property and in the contract it shows that the property is $1 million, but in fact there was no money to change hands. Um, how that will be documented is something else, but um, since it's a true to father-son transaction, obviously there is a way for them to document a potential change of, of money without actually transferring that kind of money. Uh, so it, it's possible. And I think in that case, it's just a matter of transfer fees because whenever there is a purchase or a, tra- a proper transfer, uh, arm's length transaction or a transfer of property, then there's a 4% transfer fee that's paid to the land department. When, when the, uh, whereas whenever you gift the property or inherit the property, then it's only the 0.02% uh, interest mm. the, or the or gift tax that applies versus the 4%. Okay, so let's uh, move on. Admiller's here. If you have a legal question, text us 4001. You can use the app to text for no money, or uh, you can call us on 431010 to talk to Ludmilla directly. Um, put your name on text if you are texting in so that we can address you appropriately. Let's move on to, say I've been a bad boy at work for a change, because it doesn't happen. And I receive a... <laughs> I know, yes, I know you want to... Inconceivable. Yeah, it's quite right. So uh, the format of warning letters, clearly a number... Different companies have different procedures, but how should a warning letter to an employee who has contravened a specific regulation or approach to work, whatever it might be, what should the format be under the law? 
A warning letter in particular uh, in the employment context relates to uh, what's called an Article 120 termination, and that is under the labor law. Uh, So when an employee is terminated under Article 120, uh, he or she loses a lot of the benefits that would, that would otherwise be entitled to, and so. There, but to for a company to uh, to invoke uh, Article 120 termination, they need to issue a specific type of warning letter, and uh, these examples come up quite often because companies will provide employee with a warning letter and then and at the same time simultaneously will terminate them. In short, that will not work. Uh, for a warning letter to qualify as being a 120 termination warning letter, it has to be a very specific, and that is one. Uh, you, there has to be some, uh, there's a clear investigation. The language of the law uses the word investigation, which basically means there, um, there has to be some proof that a warning letter was provided to the employee and an employee had an opportunity to respond. And this was not a fabricated warning letter so that it had to actually correspond with the actual, uh, with the actual um, uh, warning. Uh, so that's one element. So it has to be there has to be some sort of investigation, i.e., some evidence that the employee actually received and was able to respond to it. And then two, there has to be some time that will be given to the employee to correct his or her performance. Uh, and in general terms, it al- also has to be a follow-up warning letter. So one warning letter, in other words, does not uh, d- uh, is is often not enough. Now, what's the relevant time for the warning letter, or how many warning letters? It's a subjective exercise and much depends on the context of employment. So, for example, if you're trying to terminate someone who is in sales, you, if you just give them one week to try to correct their performance, obviously that's not reasonable. Uh, but if it's uh, somebody who continues to fall asleep at, at his or her desk, then one week uh, to correct that performance, uh, such as in your case, Tim, <laughs> and it How would be sufficient. Have you been watching him? How do you know that he does that every day? Uh, yeah, well... It's like uh, you're here in the building. It's sort of like the elephant in the room. Yeah. But but the reason the reason the the format of the warning uh, notice has to be so specific it's because the uh, the penalties uh, or the I guess the repercussions for the employee to be terminated under article 120 are quite severe. So normally an employee is entitled to a whole set of uh, post employment benefits such as for example NSO's benefits if the employee has worked for the company for more uh, for more than a year then there's a potentially uh, there's a notice period and sometimes it's minimum of 1 month and it could be anywhere to six months and there's also arbitrary dismissal which in most cases is three months so therefore for an employee when especially an employee had worked for the company for a number of years the um, the, the termination benefits could be quite substantial but if an employee is terminated under article 120 they're walking away from all of that the only element of their employment that they're still entitled to is basically the salary the prorata salary for the work that they've done but otherwise they're giving up and the notice period and arbitrary dismissal and end of service benefits so therefore the penalties are quite severe and therefore the law is quite strict you're listening to drive live talks legal our guest today is ludmilla yamalova if you have a question please do text us for double zero one via the free messaging app she will be answering questions on visas and employment law soon drive live talks legal i'm not answering any legal questions nlt i'm really sorry no our I, guest I could is try our I guest, know. our little family is answering your legal questions. Our guest today is Ludmila Yamalova from Yamalova and Petka. We have had quite a few questions coming in. If we can kick off with this one from Man- Mansour. It says, I joined my current employer eight months ago. However, due to, due to recent restructuring, I am made redundant. I've completed my probation. What is the severance package? Um, I'm being offered one month notice and two months severance. Um, I, was under- I was of the understanding that it's a three month severance package. 
depends on what's in the contract. But if the contract it has a one month notice, then you'd be entitled to one month notice. However, the contract has a longer notice period, then you'd be entitled to that notice period. So definitely review your contract because um, many contracts, especially if you were of a senior position, have a longer notice period. That's as far as the notice period is concerned. Then in, in as far as what's, what you call the severance package, it's uh, in the UAE, it's actually called arbitrary dismissal. The law provides for up to three months of arbitrary dismissal, in particular if it's a, if it's a limited contract. In most cases, the courts do grant the full three months, but it's up to three months. Uh, but the law is is uh, drafted in the way that it's up to. But in practical terms, uh, courts most of the time in limited contracts give the full three months. However, they will also look at the duration of your contract. So in your case, since you worked for eight months, in it, it is possible the court would reduce the three months to two months. So based on what you described, it seems that it's it's fair it's a fair settlement that you've been offered unless your uh, the terms of your contract provide something additional okay and maxime says um is it legal that a company deducts the cost of a visa and other employment costs from the settlement when the employee resigns and serves more than the notice period no it is not legal and it's one of my favorite questions because a lot of companies do this the law uh, the law has always provided that any any cost or expenses uh, that are required to make an employee work legally in the country are the obligation of the employer um, that is the company uh, so it is illegal for companies to pass on that cost in the employees, so let alone deducted from the settlement uh, settlement uh, figure. Can I just go back to what we were talking about just before uh, the quick break there? We were talking about warning letters, what you need to prove if you issue a warning letter to an employee, essentially uh, proof or evidence of contravening a regulation or, or whatever it is the person hasn't done. Time, uh, offering an employee time to correct their uh, performance, and then there has to be a follow-up letter. That's essentially... Is that right? Correct, yes. But also the warning has to be proportionate with the employee's actual uh, responsibilities. And so what often companies do is that they will say, well, the employee, for example, uh, was expected to deliver or sell to X amount or X million uh, per year. But that expectation of those metrics actually have to comport with the initial uh, roles and responsibilities of the employee when he or she signed up for, uh, for their job. So they cannot be unilaterally imposed later on. Right. So those are the obligations in a nutshell. Is that different under DIFC employment law, somebody's asking? Yes, it is. So what, what I was just talking about, it's under the UAE labor law. The DIFC right. law or the DIFC, all the DIFC companies are subject to a different set of laws, which are the DIFC laws and subject to the DIFC court's jurisdiction. And in uh, in brief and relevant terms, the DIFC laws or employment uh, are much more contra- contract-based. So whatever's in the contract, um, then uh, it's it, that's what's going to be enforced. And so so if, however, there is in the in the DFC there is no unfair dismissal provision. So in the U under the labor law in the UAE there is the arbitrary dismissal, which in in the way equates to unfair dismissal. In the DFC courts, that does not exist. Okay, and George's text in this is another employment question. They say they can't find their original contract, but they've been terminated, um, and it was eighteen months they've worked there for and. Do they are they entitled for the same type of severance package if they've not worked full time hours, so a part time job essentially? Well, there's no such thing as a part time job, technically speaking, in the UAE. So every employee, as long as they're employed, uh, they are under proper full on uh, employment visa, which is a residence visa. They might have uh, shorter hours, but as um, as a type of employee, they're the same kind of employee as if they were working full time. Um, so the be- the benefits are all the same. There's no difference. 
Here's another question for you. This is Valter, I think, texting this. Is it correct that or not that service fees are paid over the built-up area, including the balcony? We have a very large balcony with our apartment. We therefore pay relatively high service fees for our apartment. In short, yes, that's correct, and that's because most uh, most properties are described in terms of the square footage that includes the um, uh, the balcony and any and any any kind of outdoor space. So therefore, when the building calculates uh, the service charges, they calculate as per the square footage or square meter uh, that's included in the title deed, which would include the um, uh, all your terraces and other outdoor space. So yes, that would be uh, proper. And just very briefly, I know we're out of time, but Faisan texts in and says, Hi, I've applied for a visa for my sister-in-law, her daughter and her husband. Her husband's been refused a visa. I don't know why. We're not being given any information. A travel agent says I can uh, get the money refunded. The fees that have been spent, but the MOI says it can't be. Do you know um, if that's right? And... Where can I find the reason for a visa refusal? Okay, so in relevant terms, I'll break it up into two. One, are the uh, whether the cost of the visa are refundable, and two, is the reason for, for the denial. With regards to the cost of the visa, I'm not aware of it to be refundable. In fact, I know that it is not refundable, at least for maybe the travel agent was referring to their own travel agent costs, but as far as the Ministry of Interior or the Immigration is concerned, those, um, those costs are not refundable. As far as the reason for denial is concerned, uh, those reasons are not publicly disclosed or they're not even disclosed to um, the actual applicants and most of the time it's because of a matter of state security and uh, in the event you don't believe that um, that that person should be on on the list of state security then um, sometimes these things happen and you just need to wait out usually three to six months to try again. Ludmili Amalova, Isrimyadva and Plethka are legal experts uh, as ever. Always good to see you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Appreciate it. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.